Hey, uh, g'day, welcome. If you're new and I haven't met you yet, lovely to meet you. Nice to have you here with us. If, you know, um, particularly uh, welcome to uh, Bethany's Belong, Paul's brother, who is a different hairstyle. Um, nice, to, nice to see you, mate. Um, uh, really, yeah, really, um, really special to be here. Really special to open up this new book. Uh, really excited to get into some Old Testament. I love me some Old Testament. Uh, it's got all the great stories in it with lions and, and, and fights and death and all sorts of good stuff for the kids. So it's, it's going to be exciting. Looking forward to doing that with you. Yeah, Rafa's got a big smile on his face at those ones. Um, and uh, yeah, really, I'm just, just uh, excited to hear what God's going to do because um, the, the the story of Daniel in Babylon is just one that that does rhyme with our current time, uh, and so I'm really just praying that God will help us to think through how it is that we engage in the culture that we find ourselves in, through seeing how Daniel did it, but even more than that, seeing how he points us towards Jesus and what we have in Christ, and the resources that 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 gives us to actually engage really well with our culture. Um, so how about how about if you wouldn't mind just pray with me again. And we'll, let's use this time to, 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 to individually, not just for me to ask it for you, but for you yourself to ask God to speak to you and ask His Spirit to do that tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I need you, and I need you to change my heart even as I preach this once again. And Father, we just ask, Lord, that you would speak to us now, that as we hear your word and what you're like, what your Son has done, and what's true about history that it would change us, that it would change our perspective, that it would change our perspective on ourselves so that we might live for you, so that we might bring Jesus' name glory in ways that we couldn't and that we might live in, in your joyful blessing in ways that previously we felt disconnected. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, throughout Western history, Babylon has been a, a bit of a symbol of decadence, uh, in fact, this biblical metaphor is actually still current enough that Hollywood is using it. I don't know if you know, but uh, coming out very soon. Hold on, let me see if I can. You maybe my clicky thingy. See if I can get that. You can fix that to work. Is it the focus? Maybe is the focus not in the right thing? Ah, goodness. Oh, hey, yeah, that's a good. That's good. You in IT support? All right. Let's see how we go. Uh, is the focus on Proclaim, the Proclaim app? That's normally what it is, yeah? All right, could you just flick it forward one slide for me? Anyway, you maybe we might need to see if... Well, that looks like I can control it now, now that you've done that. All right. Um, the, the Margot Robbie, Brad Pitt, they are, the, if, you know, coming to cinemas near you December 23rd. Hollywood is still using the metaphor of Babylon to sell, well, all the things that Hollywood sells, right? <laughs> um and, and so there's, it's actually got a, metaf a biblical metaphor that, that Stephen Hollywood still uses. In fact, it used to be true about five or ten years ago. I don't know if it's still true, probably less true. Um, but someone argue, was arguing for, this was a, a secular person arguing for the teaching of the Bible in schools just so that you would get all the cultural references. Because you can't read Shakespeare and get the jokes if you don't know your Bible, if you don't know your King James Bible particularly for Shakespeare, Right? And so it's, it's interesting that Babylon, despite the fact, I don't think we're quite there anymore. I, think the, I don't think you need the Bible to understand most memes these days. But, but Babylon is still enough that come December 23rd, it's got cachet for people. What do you think of when you think of Babylon? Has anyone got like something that pops into your head? Babylon. What kinds of concepts or things do you, do you think of? Hanging gardens? Yeah, 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 that's right. Just down the street there. Yep. 
live in Babylon? What, what do you think of? Boney M. <laughs> uh, no one else is old enough to get that, Steve. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Jared. Sorry, Jared. Apologies. Bit of wisdom in the room still. But what do you think of? Is it, what's it associated with? Like generally decadence, right? The, the, this, this sort of human edifice, this human sort of uh, either pleasure or power, generally. Now, we're going we're gonna to dig into why Babylon matters here, because in Daniel, in this book, the reason Babylon matters is because they were the big bad guys at the time when God needed a big bad guy. God needed a big bad guy. Why, do, why does God need a big bad guy? Well, see, God had this special people who were His, Israel, whose job it was to stick with their God, just trust their God, be special to Him, different to the other nations, just stay the course, be, be, your, be your special people is God. You'll be weird, different, who cares? But if you can stick with your God and trust Him, He will use you to save the world. But they couldn't do it. They, they, they couldn't trust that their God would give them what they needed if they, if they decided, well, we'll be just a bit weird and different to everyone else. No, no, no. Ev- seeing everyone else, seeing Babylon meant that they felt, ah, oh, if I've got what the other nations have got, then I'll have security. If I've got what the other nations have got, then I'll have prosperity. And so that fear, that, that, that jealousy led them to reach out for the gods of the other nations, and God said, ah, uh, that's enough. Because there's a guy named Habakkuk. I don't know if you've ever read Habakkuk. Who who knows and has read Habakkuk? Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. It's slightly lower on the list of, you know, Bible books to read. You don't really have Habakkuk sitting on your wall uh, as an inspirational verse, right? Although some people do. Um, and, And Habakkuk was this guy who saw that this meant Israel had started acting like the pagan nations too. So not just that they worshiped their gods, they were acting evilly. And so God had to act to put this rescue plan back on track because his people weren't doing the job. They weren't trusting him. And he announced this to a bloke named Habakkuk. And here's what he said to Habakkuk. He says, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, and that last line there, guilty people whose own strength is their God. Now, who here's old enough and also crass enough to know that that's Scott Steiner kissing his own bicep there? There we go. Paul Matthews at the back. You got me. Yeah. And come they did, these men whose own strength was their God. And the first three verses of Daniel, Jehoiakim's third year and Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem, takes the city. These strong men come and are the big bad guys and they take over God's people. Now, did you notice as you were reading through it, it's a really interesting read. There's lots of subtleties to pick up. This isn't just about, say, money. Not about riches. It's about power and reputation. This conquest is about who wins and whose God wins. You see, when the city falls, the most interesting detail to the author was that Nebuchadnezzar took the sacred items from the temple. That was the thing. That was the crowning glory or the crowning defeat, the crowning shame. And he took them and put them in his God's temple. If anyone wants to know whose God is stronger, just have a look. Where's the gold? Who managed to carry off whose gold and bring it back home? Our God. And yet right from the start, even as Nebuchadnezzar's dominance is established, he is the big strong guy, did you notice that the story, the storyteller signals that there's another way to see these events? 
And this is going to see this all through Daniel. There's the obvious and there's the hints. There's the front of stage at the theater with all of the the gaudy outfits, much like WWE wrestling. And then there's the script behind the scenes. See, in verse 2, it's the Lord who allows this to happen. It's God who hands over His own people and His own sacred objects to Nebuchadnezzar. Willingly. Sometimes we pray for things to happen in our world, politically, and the things that happen might not be the things that you want to happen. But if it happened, was God in control? Of course He was. See, right from the start, we have a human king building his empire, conquering the gods of the tribes around him, but a story that says that the true balance of power is not as it seems. And so we get our exiles arriving in Babylon. The boys arrive in Babylon. What's going to happen? Forced into mandatory detention, enslaved, cutting, cutting bricks in the, in the, uh, out in the fields, thrown into the gladiator's pit maybe? Well, not exactly. This is, this is, this is not the story of your average refugee, even in Australia. In, in a continuation of the power play, it turns out Nebuchadnezzar hasn't just taken the best of the gold, he's taken the best of the people as well. These are the best and the brightest. I won't ask you to sort of have a vote on, you know, who you think from here would be the, you know, the, who would be the ones carted off to Babylon because they're the, they're the promising, good-looking ones, right? The, Nebuchadnezzar is recruiting the next generation of his administration from this conquered territory. And, and of course, at the same time, this is smart because what does it do? It leaves a leadership vacuum back in Judah. See, this is less the sad story of a a prisoner of war who's stuck in the hole in Guantanamo Bay. This is more the story of an up-and-comer who's been making his way in the world and he lands on his feet after a hostile takeover by an um, an evil mega-corporation. And he's now in that company. Yes, it's the result of a deadly siege, all of that sort of stuff, but they land in the penthouse, right? All expenses paid education. Wouldn't mind a scholarship. Anyone here applied for one and not got one? You would, yeah. All expenses paid. Food and wine, direct from the king's table. Top deck at Muir's. <laughs> they get a th- free three-year uni degree. All accommodation and meals and wine provided. <laughs> a little dangerous for uni students, isn't it? Wine provided. But anyway, it's, it's not quite sort of like, it's not the plonky plonk that I partook of while I was doing my degree, right? This is, this is the king's stuff. And at the end of it, what do they get? A prestigious graduate program going directly into the king's administration. This is good, right? Individually. Except your homeland's still burning. And you're lonely. No one talks like you. And you're far from home. And your God's temple has been plundered and everyone thinks he's a joke. And there's actually this one other thing too. There's this little cost. Your name. Your name. You don't get to keep your name. I'm going to change your name. This is Nebuchadnezzar. Can you imagine your new boss at your job saying, right, okay, you're not going to be Pete. You're going to be Jonesy. I don't know. You're going to be Buddha. I'm going to name you after my God. See, that's what's happened here. See, Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh has been generous. Mishael means who is like my God. Um, Azariah means God has helped. But the names that they get given are all references to Babylonian gods, to Bel, to Marduk. You imagine. 
you kind of like your name? Is there a little bit of it that you're proud of? And having someone deliberately strip that away from you and call you something else. There's a power thing going on here, isn't there? He wants to break and reshape and change the identity of these men. And the interesting thing is, I don't know about you, but do you find it... I think sometimes we focus on the little, mo- the little point of rebellion. But you didn't notice, they go along with this. Daniel doesn't say, oh, I will not be called by Belshazzar, by the name of Bel. I refuse. I mean, they probably had to do that to stay alive, but it's, but it's worth noting they didn't kick up a stink about this, and they are willing to risk their lives later in the book, aren't they? I don't know what you would do if an evil corporation took over your business and named you Monsanto is good, or I belong to Nestle, you know? But these guys are willing to go along with it. They put up with the names, and they don't refuse the education. See, the question you've got to ask at first is actually, have they sold out? Is this the right thing to do? But Daniel is determined. He is determined to at least find one point of difference, to mark one distinction between them and the, 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 uh, the rest of these guys who are training for this job. And he picks food. Food. Why food? I mean, you accepted the education, which that feels like that's kind of discipling, the accommodation, the name, the grad program. Why not the food? There has been a few theories that people have put forward. The, the, the first one is that it could have been because he thinks the food would be offered to Babylonian gods. You know, he, he, it's clear in the text, he says, he would, didn't, didn't want to defile himself with this food. He didn't want to make himself spiritually dirty because of it having been offered to another god. And that's quite possible. But the thing is, he couldn't have been sure that the vegetables hadn't have been offered to a foreign god either. Like that, he, he runs the same risk with vegetables. It's not that meat's the only thing offered. And there's no indication here that he asked, oh, is the, are the vegetable, can we make sure the vegetables aren't temple vegetables? So, probably not just that. And, and, and it could be that maybe, maybe the meat's not kosher, because of course you remember that, he, that Israel was meant to be special, different, and one of the ways that they were was they only ate a certain kind of food. Maybe Daniel didn't want to break the mosaic, mosaic law by eating this meat from an unclean animal, or hadn't been prepared in the way God said. And he'd have been right, because meat probably wouldn't have been prepared in a Jewish way. It wouldn't have been kosher. But then you think, well, so why did you refuse the wine? Wine's fine. Nothing wrong with wine. So why did Daniel choose the food to refuse? Now, it could have been a little bit of both. It could have been a little bit of all of these things together. It helps him to avoid not kosher stuff. Maybe, maybe it's less likely that the vegetables are offered. But the clue that is here in the text is that it's the king's food that he doesn't want to eat. It's not only that he, it's not, um, to, to, to not only accept the scholarship and the job and the new name and, and then to also eat the food from the king's very table, to become used to it, to become reliant on the wine, to, to come to expect it, to be eating from his very hand. I wonder if this is Daniel just asserting at some point, here's where I stand. No, I belong to God and I know he can sustain me through substandard food. I think that's the point we're supposed to make here. I don't, I don't think the point, not the, this is not anti-vegetarian, but I don't think it's pro-vegetarian either. I think the point that he's trying to make here is that this would have been, everyone would have thought, well, they're going to be, they're going to have less food. They're going to be less sustained. They're going to be less well off, less calories in the diet. They're going to be less, less big. It was unexpected, wasn't it, for Ashpenaz? when it didn't work out that way. See, the king may have put his name on Daniel, 
But Daniel, in saying, oh, I'm going to trust that my God can sustain me, put, put it on his heart. This is sort of the there's literal Hebrew sort of parallels there. The king put his name on Daniel, but Daniel put it on his heart to not eat the king's food. And it's this little marker that they laid, a point of distinction. Now, Ashpenaz, this is the, the chief of the king's eunuchs. Um, I always find that a sort of a hilarious sort of concept. There's a eunuch division within the king's administration. Now, he, he's, his neck is on the line here. Uh, the king's food was thought to have brought with it this special blessing to those who ate it. And so, so the, the other guys, if they had that healthy glow, and then these, these Jews who were under Ashpenaz's command were looking pretty dodgy, well, it could be his head. Like, literally, he's scared he's going to die if he, if he does this. But now, for a second time in this text, we can see that even though the, the foreground looks thoroughly like the Babylonians are in control, backstage, it's God actually calling the stage directions. It's God pulling the strings. Because it's God who influences Ashpenaz to take pity on Daniel and the guys. He gets what he wants. Sorry, don't know if it was me. He gets what he wants. And Daniel has to negotiate a trial period at first. It's, he has to negotiate a guy saying, will you risk your life for me? But, but, but he does. He, he does it. Ten days, does the trial, and the veggie diet works well. They look better than the others. Now, I, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> look, this is the funny thing, right? Daniel doesn't tell us exactly if this is like a miracle or if maybe, you know, they had scurvy or something and they were the only ones who were eating vegetables and they genuinely looked better because they had some vitamin in it. You see, at what level did God's providence work here? Did God zap them and make them healthy in a way that wouldn't, doesn't make sense from the nutrition? Or is God just the best chess player ever and arranges all the little bits and pieces and, yeah, there was some sort of vitamin deficiency and, they, and in only 10 days, all of a sudden, just happened to look, look better visibly, right? Like it's... See, we don't know. And that's, that's something we're going to get used to in Babylon. And something maybe we get used to in our lives here. Sometimes we don't know whether the things that God is going to do, whether the circumstances that happen, that actually work out for, for, for the best, are a miracle or just all the bits of providences falling into place. Because God just never misses a move in chess. Have you ever played chess against someone who's better than you? And you're just like, oh, hold on, I'm going to go here. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, but that piece, that's not, that's not even important, but it stops me from... And every time you make a move, this is me playing against Jared and Elijah. So um, you guys know Jared and, um, oh, sorry, I just said Jared. That's so bad. RJ. RJ and Elijah. So you guys know RJ off, off um, training to become a missionary uh, in Melbourne. Um, but um, he's quite good at chess, right? So I played against him and got flogged. But his um, 10-year-old son is also quite good at chess. And annoyingly, I play against him and I get flogged. This is humiliating. Like, we're standing there in front of each other or it's on the, over the internet on the phone. I'm, I'm doing it because I love him, but I am getting humiliated. Like, every single time I make a move, I'm like, oh, no. Oh, what's he going to do next? And, and every time I try and do something, all of a sudden, this piece that just didn't seem to matter before, I didn't, why on earth did he do that three moves ago? And then I was like, oh, no. It just ended up being where it needed to be. And this is what God does. Daniel doesn't tell us if it was a miracle or not, but it was there. Now, the boys are looking good, um, and, and when they get to this entrance exam for the grad program, these guys ace it, right? These guys get there, and there is no one equal to them, none. There are some serious superlatives here in these sentences. I love it. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom, not just even the city, the whole kingdom. 
these guys are going well. It's not just that Jewish people were smarter than the average people around, right? You can see God's hand as a chess player here. Now, remember, this, this whole exile thing was actually meant to be a punishment, right? They, they may have landed in the penthouse, but this, but this whole scene is actually one where God has abandoned His people and leaving them to the punishment that they deserved. This was God bringing in the strong man to discipline His unruly nation. In fact, particularly the royal families of whom Daniel and these guys were members because they were the upper class, they were the ones who were being disciplined. It is a strange, weird grace that God has allowed these guys to thrive. Why? I thought this was supposed to be punishment. Why this grace? Why this, why this kindness? We're going to reveal it as we go through the book, but there's a little hint in verse 21. A little interesting little, little verse. I'll throw it up on the screen. And Daniel remained there until the first year of Cyrus. Okay, it doesn't seem like much, but think, who's Cyrus? Persian king. He's not, he's not even from the same nation as Nebuchadnezzar. What he's saying is, Nebuchadnezzar's come and gone, Nebuchadnezzar has come and gone, like the other bunch of other kings whose names I can't pronounce, they've come and gone, another, another country has taken over, and Daniel's still there. Do you see? Nebuchadnezzar's in charge. He's the strong man. Everyone else has got nothing. And yet Daniel, because God wants him there, this subtle little message right at the start of the book, oh, by the way, kingdoms are going to rise and fall. Daniel still remain. He's still there at the end. So what do we do with this? All right. What do we do with this? What, is this? what does this mean for Christians? What does this mean for someone many thousands of years later? Well, you have an ancient identity. You have a different identity. See, uh, we live in Babylon, brothers and sisters, we live in Babylon. Um, in 1 Peter, Peter refers to the Christians scattered throughout Turkey as chosen exiles. Chosen exiles. Christians are chosen exiles. As surely as Daniel was away from the familiar suburbs of Jerusalem, the little places around the temple that he used to play, so we are in exile from the joy of God's presence. The places that little, the cells in our body long to be, even though we've never been there. Those little bits of home that are, resonate through our, our, our DNA memory, the place that we long to be. Ever since the garden, this has been so. The place... This place is, is good, this earth is good, and we were made for it. But God does not walk with us anymore, and we are looking forward to a return. Even if you don't realize it, even if you don't know it. That is true of humanity. And so when God merges heaven and earth at the end, so that us fleshly creatures will walk with our Father and the, and the Lamb in the joy of the Holy Spirit, that's when we'll be home. That'll be so good. Is that how you think about yourself, though? Like, do you, th do you think that this is your home, where you are now? You're in exile. You're away from your home. Now, sure, put down some roots, get an education, work here. Daniel and the boys did. But never forget where you came from. You come from God. He made you. And to Him is where we should be looking to return, to get to, because that's where we've come from. 
I see, it, it's when you when you read, you are an, an exile here. You know, this is not your home. Don't don't think of yourself as oh, I'm an exile. I'm lonely here. I don't fit in. Don't don't think about it from the negative perspective. We need to think positively about our spot at God's side, our citizenship in His kingdom, our place at His table, our place in His schedule that we belong in. You have a home. You're just not there. You've been away from there for years, way longer than the 70 years of Daniel's exile, and we're homesick. We don't even know it. I want you, I want you, to, I want you to imagine when God brings you home. Like, you know the little things that make you feel at home? I mean, you know, you, you, you've just experienced this whole thing of being away for a while, and then you come back home. What are the little things that make you feel home? Maybe a smell, a little spot that you like to sit, a place that just feels right and familiar and safe. That's where we're going to be. That's who you are. It's your identity. Those are your ancient roots in the ancient God. And this is the family that we strive to bring honour to. The family of that identity. Don't forget who you are. There's lots of influences trying to name us, trying to mark us. Um, for, for some of you, I mean, because there are, there are other identities that try and grab you, right? For some of you, maybe your family and trying to bring honour to your family, and trying to do well for your earthly family, to have you conform to the image that they would want you to have, is something that is trying to mark you, put its name on you. And of course, our family is part of our identity, but our primary identity is the one from the, our truest Heavenly Father, the one who even gave us the family in the first place. Live for that home even more so than for this one, for that family and its honour even more than the one you have here. Maybe, maybe you're the other way around and maybe you, you're very modern and Western, you're, you're breaking away from your family and trying to set your own individual identity. Um, well, the world does that, right? The world tries to name us as, as individual and different. In fact, Sexuality now is, is one of the key ways that people think about their identity. I mean, maybe you're same-sex attracted. Maybe you're experiencing gender dysphoria or, or, or some other kind of um, sort of unusual sexual orientation other than a, a, a heterosexual orientation. And if so, you probably suffered a lot because of that, I'm guessing. Maybe you've even suffered a lot because of how the church has responded to that. Now, I want to recognize the beautiful thing it is that you're here, first of all. Thanks for being here. So good to have you. The fact that you're here and willing to listen to God speak. But the world is trying to tell you that your name is gay or trans or some other label. As if that part of yourself is, is everything that you are, as if that's the core thing about you. Like, the, like Nebuchadnezzar tried to name Daniel and control him and put him in a box that he made him comfortable with it. This is a very real thing. In a culture like ours, wanting, to, wanting us to, to, to label ourselves and understand ourselves as sexuality is our identity. Which is funny, because in heaven, it's not even going to be a thing. In, in heaven... No one's getting married or being given in marriage. Our intimacy needs will be fulfilled so fully and completely in our connection with God and each other that we're not going to need that. 
it's going to become a sort of irrelevance. So what does that mean? If you build your whole life around your identity connected with the sexuality, that therefore all of a sudden you disappear in heaven because everything that was your identity is gone? No, you're way more than that. You're so much more than your sexuality. Don't believe the lie that your gender perception is who you are. Sure, it's a part of you. It's a, something that's about you, but, but you are so much more than just that. If you want to express your truest self, be the most authentically you that you can be, then live out your identity as God's beloved child. That's the deepest roots that you have. That's, that's reconnecting to the true you, the source of all life. And ultimately, you, you, if you trust in Jesus, will return to the tree of life from which we once ate and will again. So that's our identity. Secondly, oh sorry, that was meant to be my home slide. Secondly, making your mark. You see, there's no command here to make a mark, but Daniel wants to make an alternative mark. He was under significant stress to, to conform, and yet he and his buddies got together and made this pact to do this physical kind of unnecessary almost act to mark themselves out as belonging to God. Have you done that? Is it worth thinking about maybe doing something like that? Could you? Or if you think it's too risky to be openly identified as a Christian, maybe you don't want to. You see, how is your life marked out? What are your practices? What are the habits of your life and family? And do they identify you as belonging to God? It's worth thinking about. Or do the rhythms of your life mark you out as coming from this world, belonging to another place? We'll think more about this as we go through, but just wanted to to flag that with you. How could you make your mark in a way that is labeling yourself as God's? Now, this book has got a massive amount to say about how Christians can and should engage with culture. We're going we're to dig into that more as we go. But we'll finish up here and now, um, just with this last one. See, 1 Peter is the New Testament book that picks up all of Daniel's themes and plays them out for the Christian. And, and what Peter says is the mark of the Christian. You know, if Daniel abstained from Babylonian food, what should a, a Christian in Hobart abstain from? That's the question, right? Well, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, the God's chosen exiles, what does he ask them to do? He says, once you are not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So therefore, dear friends, I urge you as far as foreigners and exile to abstain from sinful desires. See, we live in Babylon. There are many things that attract us in in the world that we live in. Some seem good, but actually wage war against our souls. Lots of things that seem good, but they're sin, and actually wage war against your soul. What do you need to abstain from? What in your life would be the way to cut out something that... Doesn't, that no longer would label you as identifying with the world, but actually in your identity in God. If you're sleeping with someone you're not married to, come talk to me. Because the beautiful, because <laughs> the beautiful thing about this verse is that it doesn't come with judgment. It comes starts with mercy. See, if you have done that, if you are doing that, then there is mercy for you, love and forgiveness. And if you're like, well, that's not for me, I'm too bad, it's all wrong, I've, I, I, I'm bad, I might as well keep going, going with my badness. Well, that's the point, no one deserves it. 
you're in the right place. You're not too bad for forgiveness. And having received mercy and been washed clean, come to be with the church to receive support and prayer to keep yourself from being stained by the world again. What is it that you need to abstain from? I'm going to pray for us now that we'll abstain from things that would defile us and wage war against our souls, as Daniel tried to do in Babylon. But then after that, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper. And we're going to confess our sins, and we're going to be washed clean once again by the blood of the Lamb. So we'll do that. We'll do that. Um, do that. We'll, I'll, we'll pray, for, pray, pray to abstain. We'll sing a song, and then we'll do the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are things that we have done wrong. There are ways that we have not abstained from sinful desires. And it's waging war against our souls. It is wounding us and the people around us. Father, please not only forgive us, but help us to abstain. Help us to mark our identity both publicly and privately, as belonging to you. Father, we thank you for the example of Daniel, although he seems kind of superhuman at times, that we have almost this, this figure type of Christ there that we might follow, that we might try and emulate, so that, Lord, we will not have that sin waging war against our souls, and that we might, it might be really clear that we don't belong to any man here, any agenda here, but we belong to you, our King. We ask it in Jesus' name for this week and for this year and for the rest of our lives. Amen.